Well, as you uh, sit, do please take up your Bibles. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is our uh, text this morning, page 1145 in the Church Bible, 1145. It's the second of the two readings that Janet uh, read for us just a moment ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, page 1145. And look with me, if you will, at verse 2. The Apostle Paul writes, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, politicians have been in the news and indeed making the news again this week. Some sad stories again from politicians. Indeed, as they have been making the news in these last few weeks one way and another. Michael Portillo, writing in the Times a few weeks ago, and indeed applauding the way David Cameron has started his leadership of the Conservative Party, said this, The aim of politics is to get into power. David Cameron's duty is to propel himself and the Tory party into government. And then he goes on to say, In a few short weeks, he has jerked the party onto the centre ground. Now, whether or not you agree with Portillo's assessment or Cameron's policies or anything else in that debate, the political scene in Britain is an interesting arena for Christians to watch at the moment. It's interesting for us to observe to what extent politicians and parties will readjust their position and their policies in order to be elected or uh, re-elected, even arguably at the expense of original principles. Now I'm not actually saying that anyone's doing that. I know very little about politics and I have no desire to make any political point whatsoever and certainly not in the first sermon at a new church. I'm just saying that it is interesting, it's an interesting thing to look at because any church that is bothered about winning the outsider will if I can use a political phrase, we'll have to consider its policies. Uh, The catchphrase in the Church of England that you may have heard at the moment is this, new expressions of doing church. The point is, say the Church of England, uh, the wider church, we need to try new ways to reach the outsider. And we should welcome imaginative thinking on reaching those who have no knowledge of the gospel and who will never darken the doors of a church. But as we ask that question, as we consider how to win the unbeliever, we must ask, how far will we go to get a hearing? What are we prepared to do to attract people to Jesus? Because, you see, as we seek to win people to Christ, and I know that is one of the real concerns of people here at Christ Church Forward, as we seek to win people to Christ, there will always be a temptation for us to subtly shift what we believe or to adopt methods that themselves deny what we believe, to be ruled by pragmatism. Now, as we study these first five chapters, uh, first five verses of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we see that Paul faced exactly that temptation. And we'll see where he was simply not prepared to shift or compromise. Look again at verse 2. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was Paul's resolute position when he came to Corinth some years before writing this letter. On this he would not shift 
but it seems as he wrote the church in Corinth had wavered. This virile young church that Paul had planted in Corinth had already begun to go astray. Seduced by the popular thinking of the day, they had become reluctant to follow Christ and him crucified. I think that's the key phrase in verse 2. Oh yes, they still bore the name of Christ. They still met together each week. They still called themselves Christians. Indeed, Paul still called them a church. But they were some way down the track of unhelpful compromise. And they were some way from holding on to Paul's own resolution in verse 2 of Christ and him crucified. Corinth was a cosmopolitan city. It was an exciting, throbbing metropolis, a happening place. Corinth was very avant-garde. And the church in Corinth had been seduced by the thinking of the world. Like the society around them, the Christians had become impressed by those who were powerful and impressive characters. They loved great oratory and they hankered after dramatic and ecstatic experiences. And as a result, they had begun to turn away from the message of a Jesus that suffered. They didn't want Christ and him crucified. They wanted an easy life. They craved a message of triumphalism. Well, who doesn't want an easy life? And that's how it is in some churches today. Certainly in London we were aware of churches who promised, if people came to Christ, success, wealth, prosperity and basically everything being good. Churches who taught nothing of sacrifice and hardship in following Jesus. Have you come across churches like that? That's the spirit of Corinth, a church that knew nothing of following Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what does it mean to be resolved to know Christ and him crucified? What will it look like for us here at Christ Church Fullwood or indeed for any other church anywhere else? Well, if you're taking notes, here's the first point. Following Jesus Christ and him crucified means rejecting the wisdom of the world. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or here superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus and him crucified. Now don't misunderstand this, this point on superior wisdom. Paul's resolution in verse 1 and 2 was not that he would only ever preach what we might call the simple gospel. This was not a promise that every message he ever gave would be a gospel presentation, as we might call it, explaining that we're sinners facing the judgment of God and that Jesus died to take away sin and save us from hell and be with him for all eternity. Oh, Paul rejoiced in that message, and I trust we do too. And for sure, Paul would have preached that to them. But that's not what he's saying here. Uh, Indeed, the rest of this letter makes that plain. As you read through, you see he's very ready to engage in all sorts of other issues. Now, verse 2 is not an excuse for never going beyond the simple gospel. And don't think uh, uh, when he says in verse 1 that he didn't come with superior wisdom, please don't think that Paul is anti-intellectual here. Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a university graduate. 
In Acts chapter 26, as Paul stood before Festus and spoke of the death and resurrection of Jesus, Festus shouted at Paul. Do you remember these words? I love this phrase. Paul, Paul, your great learning is driving you insane. Now, Paul was a scholar. And what about Paul's letters? They continue today to stretch the great minds around, the greatest minds around. Paul is no anti-intellectual nitwit. What Paul is saying here is very specific to the situation in Corinth. Look back to chapter 1 and verse 22. Paul says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. There it is again. The same words that we see in chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. Paul preached Christ crucified, but the Greeks, the Corinthians, loved wisdom. Indeed, the whole of this section from verse 18 is dominated by that word wisdom. And again, don't be fooled, it's not here the wisdom of the Bible. It's not the wisdom of the book of Proverbs, the wisdom of living under the fear of the Lord. That's a grand thing. Now, wisdom as it's used here was a, a public philosophy, a well-articulated world view that, that sought to make sense of life and order our choices and values and priorities. It was, if I can put it this way, the latest thinking of the day. And the Greeks loved nothing more than debating the pros and cons of the up-to-minute wisdom of the world. And while it might sound noble to be a lover of wisdom, Paul was not impressed because this was a wisdom that left Jesus Christ out of the equation. Hence chapter 2 verse 1, when I came to you brothers I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. As you hear the irony. Paul did not come to the Corinthians with the popular wisdom of the day. A wisdom that ignored or denied Jesus Christ because Paul knew that Jesus is the wisdom of God. Apart from Jesus, we simply cannot understand the world we live in. And Jesus said it himself, I am the light of the world. Not just I can shed light on the world, but I am the light of the world. Not just I can tell you what life is all about, but I am what life is all about. You cannot understand life, the universe and everything without me, said Jesus. So Paul wouldn't entertain the thought of embracing the wisdom of the day. And he refused to attract the Corinthians with the methods of the day either. Again, look at verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. The Corinthian culture did so highly value rhetoric, powerful oratory and the debating chamber where the latest ideas and philosophies were uh, debated, disputed, deliberated. For entertainment in first century Corinth, you didn't take your family to the cinema to watch Narnia or King Kong. You certainly wouldn't sit down in front of the telly to watch something as crass as Celebrity Big Brother. Uh, you take your family to hear two intellectual giants debating each other. That was for entertainment, thrashing out the latest philosophical ideas. That's what the Corinthians loved and valued in their society. These debaters were the celebrities of the day and Christians loved them and sadly were taken in by them too 
and the church then and often since has been captivated by the wisdom of the world. Now, 200 years ago the rationalism of the Enlightenment had become the superior wisdom, the latest thinking. The thinking of the day then was that only things that could be proved by science could be believed. And so what we now call theological liberalism grabbed hold of the church denying the miracles of Jesus because rational thinking said that miracles couldn't possibly happen. And desperately that nonsense is taught and believed in theological faculties throughout the West and it continues to rip the heart out of the faith of individuals and congregations and whole denominations today. You see, when the wisdom of the world said that miracles were irrational, that miracles couldn't possibly happen, so the church explained away the miracles of Jesus. Paul says in verse 1 and 2, I did not come with the wisdom of the world. I will not do that. Verse 2, I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And you see, that is such a hard position to hold firm to. Because few of us find it easy to swim against the tide. I don't meet many people who like to hold on to positions that are contrary to the majority in society. Indeed, I can think of many times in conversations with unbelievers when I've been sure that as I explain the Christian position, I'll be considered an idiot. You know how it goes, you're having a conversation about something or other and uh, somebody wants you to bring the Christian perspective on a, on a particular conversation you're having and it just goes through your mind before you say the next thing. You, you know that they're going to think you're a complete buffoon if you say that. Even though that's what the Bible says. Because the world just dismisses it as stupid. To speak of Jesus Christ and him crucified as the answer to life seems so foolish to those around us. But you see, that needs to be our resolution. As we consider how to reach out to those who do not know Jesus Christ, it will be very tempting to want to tailor our message a little, to make it a little more palatable to the outsider. Can't we just change it a bit so that when people come in they won't be put off? Isn't that the temptation? Well, like Paul, we must hold our nerve and indeed know that it is the person of Jesus Christ and the message of his sacrificial death on the cross that is the most wonderful thing to tell people. Because Jesus is the only person and the gospel the only message that will ever bring people to God. So following Jesus Christ and him crucified means rejecting the wisdom of the world. Secondly, following Jesus Christ in him crucified means refusing to rely on the popular methods of the day. We've touched on it already, but look again at verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ in him crucified. I did not come with eloquence, says Paul. You see, it was not just that Paul would not embrace the wisdom of the world in order to win people for Christ. He also refused to adopt the methods of the world in order to attract people to Christ. The Greeks in Corinth not only loved to hear the latest views, but as we've already thought, they were wooed too by the way the view was presented. 
Ask um, teenage boys and girls in first century Corinth what they wanted to do when they grew up and they'd say, I want to be a brilliant speaker. I want to be a professional debater. And it sounds odd to us, doesn't it? In a quest for fame and fortune, I can imagine hundreds of aspiring young debaters clambering at the chance to be assessed by the Simon Cowell of the day on the reality TV programme Preach Idol. I know we can't believe it. But you see, those who debated these new ideas were huge celebrities in first century Corinth. People loved them. They marvelled at their oratory and their rhetorical skills. They were impressed by their passionate pleading. It's so hard for us to grasp because we don't value rhetoric and speech making in our culture at all. Quite the opposite. Today, everything comes in a soundbite. A pithy sentence. A clever phrase. And it's so hard for us to see the appeal of passionate speeches. We're wary of any emotional presentation of ideas. Today, we work in the currency of cool communication. I mean, just listen to the newsreader, and whether she's announcing a football result from the Premiership, or an earthquake in Pakistan, or a building collapsing in Poland, Whatever the subject, her tone of voice will be calm and exactly the same. Not so in first century Corinth. They loved and valued rhetoric and oratory and passionate pleading. And so the great temptation for Paul and indeed for all Christian leaders in the first century, the great temptation was to try and be like these great debaters in order to get a hearing and a following. To win people to Christ, not through the message of Christ and him crucified, but through the eloquence of the words or the brilliance of the argument, regardless of the content of the message. Today we might call it spin. Paul would not adopt that approach. When I came to you, verse 1, brothers, I did not come with eloquence. I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. See, he wanted to win people to Christ and him crucified. Not to himself, not to any hype or hysteria. So Paul distanced himself from the pretentious rhetoric and powerful oratory of his day. And that's not to say that Paul was not fervent. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he implores, he appeals, he tried to persuade Paul was passionate about the gospel but he would not ape the world in order to attract the world to Jesus and neither must we. See, we've already thought our temptation will not be Paul's temptation. Our society does not value oratory. We work in sound bites. So our temptation will be to reduce the gospel to a pithy sentence. Now, I heard a Christian preacher say recently, the whole of the message of the Bible is summed up in one phrase, love your neighbour as yourself. See, it sounds grand, but it's not right, is it? It's not true. What about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength? A short time ago, I heard a preacher tell his congregation, all you need to know is that God loves you. But again, it's not the whole message, is it? There's much more to say about the the wrath of God. Try to reduce the gospel to a soundbite and it's so unhelpful. If you must do it, can I suggest John uh, John 3.16? 
But you can understand why people do do it, because that's the currency we work in these days. We think our society won't listen to a careful and reasoned argument. So we'll be tempted to think that the sermon is outdated. Indeed, I've been told that on more than one occasion. Don't worry with preaching anymore, that's gone. People don't listen to things anymore. Our world loves the visual medium. And so we'll be tempted to think that if we make our presentations visual, then we'll win Sheffield for Christ. And our world loves evocative music. And I've got to say, I do. I am moved by certain music. Maybe you are too. And so again, we'll be tempted to believe that getting the music right is the answer to winning those around us. And isn't that the route down which so many in the wider church are travelling? Now look, none of you really know me yet. So let me assure you, I'm not against using these things. I admire gospel brothers and sisters who are sharp enough on the media to produce a soundbite that will get to the heart of the issue without compromising the gospel. I believe visual things can assist gospel proclamation. And I'm very positive about good music. George knows me a bit better, you can ask him afterwards. That music can help unlock the emotions and prepare us to hear God's word. Now Paul said later on in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, I've become all things to all men that by all possible means I might save some. Of course we've got to uh, try new things, but the point is Paul would not pander to the popular method of the day in order to win people to Christ. He would not rely on other things to bring people to God. He relied upon the message of Christ and him crucified to bring people to God because that is the only thing that will bring people to God. And again, we've got to hold our nerve. Jesus is the most attractive person in the universe and his cross, the most amazing demonstration of love that will ever be seen in all eternity. People will be brought to God by knowing Jesus through his sacrificial death. And if they are won by anything else, then they are not won to Christ at all. That's why Paul said, I did not come with eloquence. Even though powerful speech was the thing that everyone in Corinth valued and listened to. So let's think imaginatively together about reaching out to those around us. But let's avoid the entertainment culture. Sadly, so many in so many churches... Uh, sermons become little more than a string of interesting stories and funny anecdotes. The, the congregation become an audience and the chancellor a stage. Uh, I was struck by something Richard Buse said to the All Souls staff a, a few years ago. Richard Buse being the previous rector of All Souls before Hugh Palmer. Richard said, years ago you used to go to the theatre to be entertained and to the church to hear a prophetic message. Now it seems you go to the church to be entertained and to the theatre to hear a prophetic message. See verse 1, Paul said, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. Well, following Jesus Christ in him crucified means rejecting the wisdom of the world. Following Jesus Christ in him crucified means refusing to rely on the popular methods of the day. And thirdly, if you're taking notes, following Jesus Christ and him crucified means rebuffing the demands of the religious for powerful signs. You'll see it in verse 3. Uh, actually, it's put more positively than that uh, in verse 3. 
it's put like this following Jesus Christ in him crucified means being vulnerable see verse 3 I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling Paul came to the Corinthians in weakness and that really was remarkable because we've already seen Greeks looked for wisdom and powerful speaking and Jews demanded miraculous signs signs of power look back again to chapter 1 and verse 22 Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom but we preach Christ crucified see the message of the gospel seems so pathetic doesn't it Jesus' death on the cross seems so foolish how can a crucified man bring me to God? An unbelieving friend of mine asked it like this, if Jesus really is God and so powerful, why did he have to die? Why didn't he stay around? As someone else put it, his death seems such a waste. After all, if he was around today, every university in the world would long to have him as their professor of theology, he taught so brilliantly, Every hospital in the world would long to have him as their chief physician. He healed the sick with just a word. And every Hollywood movie maker would love to have him in charge of their special effects. He could walk on water. His death seemed such a waste. And to the Jews it wasn't just a waste or a tragedy, it was a farce. The death of the Messiah, God's King in God's world dying, and on a cross of all places, it doesn't square up. Chapter 1, verse 22, the Jews expected signs and wonders when the Messiah came. They expected sparks to fly. And it's obvious why. Think back to the great redemptive event of the Old Testament, the Exodus. The deliverance of the children of Israel from the Egyptians. It was a time of amazing miracles astonishing signs and wonders that the plagues the Lord sent upon the Egyptians were mighty the angel of death slaughtering the firstborn of all who would not trust in the Lord powerful the way Israel was led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night phenomenal the piling up of the waters of the Red Sea so that they could escape the Egyptian army spectacular of course, chapter 1, verse 22, the Jews expected and demanded miraculous signs. That's the way the Lord delivered his people, wasn't it? No wonder they thought the cross was so weak. Did ever Jesus look less like a king than when he was on the cross? And who of us, when we speak to our friends and neighbours about the gospel, who of us has not felt the weakness of the message of the cross? Have you never felt embarrassed by it? It seems so weak. And in a culture like Corinth that wanted and valued power, it was so tempting to turn to other things to persuade people to become Christians. If I can just show a demonstration of God's power to people, then they'll become Christian, won't they? As it was then, so today. The church often looks to other things to attract people to join them and it's very often the miraculous or the powerful. By contrast, Paul arrived in Corinth verse 3 in weakness and fear and with much trembling. I know how he feels. 
And the important thing is this, verse 2 was not just Paul's message, but also his method. Look closely at verse 2. Paul doesn't say, I resolved to preach nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified, but I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. And that included knowing a life of vulnerability, a life of weakness and fear and much trembling. It's not a bad thing. In fact, Paul says it's a positive thing for us to declare our our vulnerabilities, our weaknesses. The Christian life is not all success and victorious Christian living. It is tough. Oh, look, you know that, don't you? You've been living the Christian life for many years. And the Christian life, you see, can only be lived by depending on the Lord. That's what it is. Trusting him. But we will never be dependent on him unless we are defenceless, vulnerable, susceptible. If we think we've got it all sorted, we never rely on him. That's how Paul presented himself to the Corinthians. He came as one who was vulnerable, weakness and fear and much trembling. That's how we must be if our demeanour is to match our message. But at first glance, verse 3 is not very impressive, is it? Until we think about it. See, as we draw to a close, let me tell you about some friends of ours who've been through such difficulties in this last year. Uh, Catherine was uh, diagnosed with leukaemia this time last year, same age as uh, Caroline and I, young family. Uh, Paul and Sarah's first child was born in April and uh, during birth contracted meningitis. And in these last months, we've seen Catherine and Paul and Sarah, indeed Catherine's husband John, we've uh, seen them go through some of the hardest times, but seeing them trust the Lord and seeing him bring them through, not to full health, they're still struggling. But to bring them through their struggles has been to witness the mighty power of the Lord at work. Because it is in weakness that God's power is seen. And it is in weakness that God is glorified as we look at them and see the way they have testified to his power and greatness. It has brought glory to the Lord. Because it's when we do things in weakness and come through that it is very obviously God who has brought about his purposes. Now that is what Paul is saying when it comes to preaching the gospel message as well and the whole of his life. No, I will not come to you, he says, in power. I will come to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Why? Verse 4, Then you know my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. We see the power of the Spirit at work when we are weak, when we refuse to rely on the popular methods of the day, and when we reject the wisdom of the world when we simply proclaim Christ and him crucified, even though the world thinks it's foolish and weak. That's how we stand true and firm to the living God. 
4, chapter 1, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And so, chapter 2, verse 2 is a great resolution. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was Paul's resolution in Corinth and I'm going to borrow it as my resolution here at Christchurch Forward. And may I suggest it would be a great resolution for us all to have and to own. So that, verse 5, our faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Let's pray together. Paul says, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our loving Heavenly Father, it's so easy to be tempted to rely on other things, to trust in the power and wisdom of the world. We ask you rather to help us to hold our nerve, to realise our weakness, to realise that the message of the gospel is your wisdom and your strength and as we do that, as we proclaim Jesus and him crucified we pray then that you would be glorified and that we would see a real demonstration of the Spirit's power at work and we ask it through Christ our Lord Amen